Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. UK's only Things Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation in this week's episode. Scottish TUC General Secretary Roseanne Foyer on why Covid has caused a fundamental rethink of what organising means, the Better Than Zero campaign to bring collective voice and action to precarious workers, working with the Scottish Government and the ever-present question of Scottish independence, or not. Hello, hello and welcome to Union Dues, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and in this episode we feature an in-depth conversation with the Scottish TUC General Secretary, Roseanne Foyer. The STUC is entirely independent from and separate to the TUC based in London. It's got 59 affiliates made up of unions and trades councils representing over 550,000 members. Founded in 1897, its head office is in Glasgow, and Ros took up office in February of this year and is the 13th holder of the post and the first woman appointed to it. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion. How experience of Unite's organising department helped her settle into the STUC General Secretary role, the Better Than Zero campaign to bring collective voice and action to precarious workers, and the importance of social media and the STUC website complementing the overall organising agenda. And and that's not to mention some fascinating insights into how COVID has affected not just communications, but also caused a fundamental rethink of what organising means in a period of social distancing and lockdown. Working with the Scottish Government and the ever-present question of Scottish independence, or not, as the case may be. There's time for Ros to share her trade union journey from very junior civil servant via chair of the STUC's Youth Committee, co-hosting a session at the centenary STUC Congress with the legendary Mick McGahey, for the hopes for the role she now holds. As you'll hear, the glass is definitely and defiantly half full. Well, that's the taster. Now here she is. Roseanne Foyer, General Secretary of the Scottish TUC. That must still sound a bit weird. But it does. Thank you very much for joining us on the Union Jews podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. You've obviously been involved with the Scottish TUC uh, at various point, times in your, your your working life as chair of the youth committee and as an assistant secretary there. But were there particular things that you that you learned or that you tools that you used when you were or in the organising section of Unite that you found particularly useful when you came back to the STUC as general secretary? Yeah, you're right. I I really had my sort of political awakening as part of the trade union movement through my involvement in the STUC as a, a young worker and uh, spent many years doing political lobbying. But I'd also, you know, one of, one of the things that I had been was a shop steward in the workplace. And first and foremost, I was an industrial trade unionist. That's what brought me into the, the trade union movement. And the reason that I went through the, the TUC organising academy and, and down that route that was that I wanted to organise workers, you know, in the field and in the workplace. And going back to Unite gave me that grounding. So 
I started off in the TNG as a national officer. I very quickly moved over into the organising department of the TNG, working alongside Sharon Graham, who at that point under Tony Woodley was building an organising army, I think is the, is the way to put it, inside <laughs> Unite. And what I learned that I think is going to be really, really useful coming back to the STUC is strategic thinking about how to escalate campaigns. So I've had the honour of working next to some fantastic campaigners inside Unite's National Organising and Leverage Department that really understand how you understand your target, understand what the win's going to look like and, you know, understand how to mobilise workers around that win, but also to bring in and use leverage and escalate the pressure on decision makers to actually get the outcome for workers. And in today's environment where, you know, the anti-trade union laws are effectively tying our hands behind our backs at times, sometimes you do need very strong leverage strategies to get a company to move. So, you know, the British Airways example recently you know, was a political leverage strategy uh, in British Airways to actually build the amount of pressure required on them to get them to think again about standing down the staff and, and putting them on indeed, worse terms indeed. and conditions. Indeed, that's what I mean. That, that kind of leads me on to think about the Better Than Zero campaign, which has that organising and leverage strategy, but applies it to young, precarious workers and it was established what, about five years ago now, but seems to be very, very lively, very buzzy, very, very focused and effective. So that campaign was a campaign that came, came out of the, the STUC. For, for a long time, the STUC has had a very active organising group, which I was very involved in over the years um, and chaired for, for many years. What it did, it brought together some brilliant minds in the, the Scottish trade union movement from across different trade unions who shared the common goal of organising workers and sharing good practice around organising. One of the things, I mean, I really would credit people like Kat Boyd and Dave Moxham, really with the inception of Better Than Zero, and it brought a lot of really, really good young activists into the fold as well. People like uh, Sarah Collins, people like Brian Simpson, who got very early involved in that initiative. But the idea was that, you know, we're not going to overnight turn young precarious workers who are in the gig economy and on zero hours contracts into people who want to join a trade union and go to branch meetings and, you know, be part of our movement the way it's currently formulated. It was about giving young people a budget and some power and some autonomy and allowing them to shape a campaign that would be relevant to them and would work for them and would get them results. So we see better than zero. It's not in itself directly an organising strategy where we're saying to people join the union, but what we are doing is we're showing people that when you come together and collectivise and take direct actions, you can get your employer to make a different decision. So a lot of their work was very much, you know, direct action hits and, you know, pieces in the newspaper, that's that sort of thing, um, and forcing employers to make a different choice. And it has been very successful, but I think the, the bigger success of it has been not those different wins, but actually just, you know, at one point, the amount of people that were following Better Than Zero on Twitter and Facebook and that kind of thing was bigger than all the accounts of all the unions in Scotland put together. You know, so they built something, a connection 
working with young workers. And a building of consciousness about what it means to collectivise that we've then seen as the beginning of a journey. And, yes. you know, we, we have a thing called the Union Modernisation Fund in Scotland, which we oh, Yeah, we used to have that down here, but... Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and to be honest, we kind of see that as an, you know, an innovative organising fund. So we've been able to fund aspects of Better Than Zero through that funding. But also you've got areas like United Hospitality now in Scotland where they've been able to then take on organisers to really look at this precarious group of workers and think about, you know, what sort of branch models and sustainable servicing is going to actually meet the needs of workers in the hospitality industry and try and start to answer some of those more difficult questions and let the younger workers lead it themselves. Yeah, I mean, because there are all sorts of issues in there, aren't there? Because the the idea of consciousness raising so that young workers feel that collectively they can achieve something, irrespective of what structure they're in, is really important as a first step. What union servicing model encourages that and nurtures that is a se- is almost a, se- a separate question. But if you increase the belief and the power in collective voice at community community level, that's you know, that's a key foundation for building a strong, a strong union me- movement. And I'm interested in the way that the STUC has clearly fully embraced this, even though that there is clearly the potential for, you know, quasi-autonomous young self-organised workers to come up with things that that perhaps the general council of the STUC think, ah, no, not this. But 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 there's there is clearly well, there's clearly much more that brings people together than people fear could drive them apart. Absolutely. I mean, we've had our moments, uh, our oh moments. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we've had a few, for example, you know, a few libel actions and things like that that we've we've had to deal with. Uh, but I think the general feeling on the General Council is that, you know, you can't make an omelette without cracking a few eggs. And, yeah, for sure. You know, we, we have to allow people to make mistakes along the way. And, you know, it, it can be messy. We all know organising can be messy. But I think there is a real recognition on the General Council that, you know, this is something we have to be prepared to try new ways and support people to find new ways of collectivising workers and bringing people together. So I would pay tribute to the General Council because they've been hugely supportive of the the actions of Better Than Zero and, and of us putting the time in and the effort into growing the campaign. And it is something that they've they've been happy for that effort to be put in and I think that's because they realise that the divid, you know the learning that we'll get back from that and also the dividend you know the amount of people who I know who were young activists in the Better Than Zero campaign who that was their entry point into trade unionism yeah, 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 who are yeah. now actually full-time organisers in our movement or union officers you know five years down the line and, and bringing new blood into our movement is great so there is a win-win out of it as well we're training our you know our, our people of tomorrow our leaders of tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. I mean I can't but help contrast what we're talking about here with the sort of dynamics south of the border where there is sometimes tension between groups like United Voices and IWGB and some of the TUC affiliates and but here that you seem to have you seem to have been able to bring just about everyone under the same umbrella and I mean the way the website looks for example on the policy and organizing section where where you just have a row a menu that that pops up you know with about a dozen 15 different campaigning areas there's clearly so much activity that's going on here 
but has there been a conscious effort to try and redevelop the website so it's much more in tune with this organising agenda? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I would see us on a journey with the website as well. Uh, as you know, the STUC is, it is an independent organisation from the TUC. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Resources are not uh, massive in any way, shape or form. So we we have to work within the the cloth that's cut for us. However, we have been making a real approach to getting the website a bit more usable, but also more relevant. I mean, the things that I see as being imperative for the STUC are to build relevance and influence. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that... That growth agenda is something, uh, I think the fact that the STUC has made me their General Secretary is testament to the commitment of our General Council towards an organising approach and the need to grow and to build collectives uh, at the workplace and, and a, a recognition of the role the STUC can play in that. Uh, because I very much said, you know, when I was making my own pitch to be the General Secretary, what you need is an organiser, uh, and that's what I am, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, so. yeah. No, no, no pressure then. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> no, no pressure. Um, um, turning away from, from Better Than Zero and looking at, at general organising and, and, and communications, what do you think the STC has learnt from the necessity of having to communicate very imaginatively during the, during the pandemic? I mean, I know Scottish organisations are used to using video conferencing, for for example, to make sure p- that people in the more remote parts of the country are able to uh, to communicate with each other. But this is a this is quite a, a stress test, uh, and I just wondered how it how it, how you've been faring during it. People weren't using it as much as you might think. They would have been using digital equipment in Scotland, and there was far too much, you know, people taking two days at times to get to one meeting and things like that, which is entirely able to happen in Scotland with some of our more far-flung places. But we had a really interesting discussion yesterday, actually, about the the challenges of of COVID and some of the sort of existential dangers of COVID, because if people do all end up working from home, you know, what does that mean for organising and for collectivising people in the workplace? And we actually felt that there was as many advantages and opportunities in some respects as there are disadvantages because the the need for people to come together, we've actually found that across unions, a lot of things like sector committees that maybe only met quarterly in person in the past throughout the COVID crisis, they've been maybe having Zoom calls every two weeks and actually yeah. taking forward a work plan for their sectors you know, that's that's been much more proactive than, than perhaps would have happened in the past when people were coming together physically once a quarter. We've yeah. been running a series of webinars, which would probably have been small, you know, specific one-day conferences that the STUC does a lot of. And we've been running them as webinars. And it, the, the turnout has been incredible from union reps and activists. Right. And... It's people from Orkney, it's people from Wick, it's people from Dumfries, it's people that actually, it would have taken them days, perhaps, to get to the conference, if at all. And also for women with caring responsibilities and things, it's become much more accessible for them to actually attend union meetings or organising committees or, you know, branch meetings, etc. So... For all the for all the downsides, there are a number of upsides, and I think we just felt that we need to ride the wave, recognise the opportunities as well as the threats. But ultimately, you know, we need to keep banging that drum that unions need to put more dedicated resources into the organising side of what they do, because 
you know, that being proactive rather than passive, you can't just put yes, the yes. information out there digitally and expect people to to do it. It is about, you know, still getting organisers involved to talk to leaders about who do they know, who can they bring on board, setting up WhatsApp groups and, and, and Zoom groups that are actually going to do something. But, you know, I've, I'm quite hopeful about it. As I said, I think in some ways... It brings barriers down. Yeah, I agree. But also, we, we know, don't we, that once people find a voice, mm-hmm. that, you know, they're very reluctant to, to kind of shut up and get back in a box, as it were. So once people from those more far-flung places that you were you were describing realise they can contribute in a more effective uh, way to the debate, you know, that that's that's great. I mean, because they're going to want to keep on doing it. And woe beside any organisation that tries to say, no, 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 we're back to normal now. You shut up and go away. It's just not going to happen, is it? So, hmm. Um, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued, kind of switching subjects again. I'm, I'm intrigued about the relationship that the STUC has with the Scottish government, because I know that in, in the early days of the Scottish government, there was a memorandum of understanding signed. But of course, that was with the Labour government. And when it was re-signed in 2015, there was a, an SNP administration. I mean, what's the relationship like with the government, and especially in these very difficult times? I would describe it as a close working relationship. You know, we certainly fire our angst at them on a regular basis around a range of issues and challenge them on a range of issues on a regular basis. But, you know, it's a very regular basis. Our access is good. We get frustrated with the the amount of progress that, that we're able to make in terms of making a real difference for people on the ground. And I think as long as we keep that balance right, that, you know, access for the point of access alone is no use. We need to yeah. have access that makes a difference for our members on the ground. But, you know, I have to say uh, we have a, a, a really good working relationship, a healthy working relationship, because... We are very challenging to them and we will let them know when we're not happy and very publicly do that. But nonetheless, um, so for example, we've had a, a weekly COVID meeting with the Minister for Fair Work and the whole Fair Work agenda is one mm-hmm. that's been developed through the Memorandum of Understanding with Government. And, you know, oh, right. the STUC actually does have a policy. We believe employment law should be devolved because we have a government in Scotland that is committed to taking forward a fair work agenda and that yeah. was, you know, so we have very challenging conversations with them about a uh, conditionality of all go- government funding, about procurement and making sure there's access and voice, you know, access for unions, voice for workers, yeah. no zero hour contracts and making sure that, you know, the, the Scottish living wage is the minimum that uh, employers who are being funded uh, get paid. So these are the sorts mm-hmm. of conversations that we regularly are having with government. Uh, we're looking to try and develop sector bargaining across the care sector. We've just gained a commitment from government that they will undertake a review to look at uh, moving towards a national care service in Scotland, which well, has really been a, important. Yeah. an important call of ours. Our biggest issue is that they don't really have the budget to do the things we'd like them to do. So we have a Scottish government that has the will, but perhaps not the means to do yes. what yeah, And a indeed. UK government that has the means, but not the will. So it's, <laughs> it's a frustrating situation. It, it it is, and some would say the way you resolve that is by Scotland becoming independent. And and I just wondered to the extent to which that debate kind of colours everything. 
I mean, is is it is it always? I'm, I'm tempted to say it's an elephant in the room, but that's not quite the right description. But but it's an ever present kind of debate, and and sometimes. I mean, is it the case that sometimes you can't get past that because people will say, as I've just done, well, independence is the only solution. And others will say, no, staying as part of the UK is the only solution. And, and you don't get anywhere. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you're absolutely right, Simon. You've got the Scottish government at the moment, on the one hand, arguing that, you know, well, of course, we want to do these things. And we could if we had independence, we would have the, the, the means and the, the autonomy to make the changes we would want to make. And, of course, they tell us they would absolutely do everything that we're asking for, wouldn't they? Um, they would say but, that, wouldn't they, yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, on the other hand, you have the, the, the equally legitimate argument that, well, you know, that's all well and good, but independence isn't going to happen by next Wednesday and people are going to lose their jobs between now and next Wednesday and we need money now. Uh, we need substantial investment and we need... You know, fiscal stimulus at a scale that the, U, the, the only the UK government can deliver, and it's the UK government that can get the cheap credit to borrow money to the scale of the sort of rebuilding of a fairer economy that we would be looking for. So you've got the two sides of of the argument, I suppose, through the lens of COVID uh, at at the moment, and you know it is an ever present debate in Scotland. And I think that there are various views on this among our affiliates and across the trade union movement. In the last independence referendum, we took a neutral position, but argued for what a, what a, you know, a socially just Scotland should look like. And and at the moment, our policy is that, you know, it should be up to the Scottish people to decide when and if there is a second referendum. That is a decision that should rest with Scotland. That's what the Bill of Rights has, has uh, you know, or should have given us. And the STC has always had a very proud role in the debate around home rule, around devolution and, and around what is the right constitutional settlement for Scotland. And I think we will continue to do that, but I think we would want to see as many options being put before the people of Scotland as possible. Um, yeah. But as I say, there is a wide divergence of opinion and uh, we didn't have our Congress this year, so we don't have a, a, a particularly settled view yet on that matter. Yeah, I imagine a, a fluid situation. I'm always interested to, to know, Rose, about how people began their trade union journeys. Listeners of Union Jews will know that I got involved in unions because my dad was a rep. It was the sort of stuff that was talked about at home a lot. But but what or who made you interested in becoming a union a union rep? And, you know, what, what's most influenced your your journey, as it were? Yeah, I I was a, a young civil servant and I guess, I mean, like you, I was aware of unions because of my father. Um, he was a uh, a train driver and I, I remember him being out in strike when I was a child and, you know, talking about the union rep at, at his work and, and things like that. And when I started in the civil service, though, nobody approached me about joining a union. I, 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 I think I did ask someone who I was told was the union rep if I could join the union and I was told that, that they weren't the right union for me, but nobody pointed me in the direction of what was. <laughs> That was the days when we had, you know, CPSA, NUCPS, all the different civil service uh, unions for different grades, uh, all in the one workplace type thing. 
But I had a really bad experience. I actually uh, had an experience where I was uh, sexually harassed by a manager oh. at work uh, when when I worked in the VAT office in Glasgow. Oh, oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, th- it wasn't a good experience. I didn't make a formal complaint. Oh. I didn't see that there was a union to turn to. I didn't get much support from my line management. And I ended up a left work, you know, left that job and went to different government department because I saw that as my escape from what was a horrible situation. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And when I got to the new job on the first day in the induction, the rep was sitting there ready to sign us up. And What a difference. I mean, yeah. if that had happened in your first Jo- yeah. I, well, yeah. So I, jo- I joined with, you know, gladly, but I very quickly was, I, I, I think I was a real pain to that rep because I was always <laughs> on at them until eventually they said, look, just become a rep and, you know, join the branch and we'll send you in courses about yeah. equality. I became a sexual harassment support officer and I just had a real part. I wanted to make sure nobody else was going to be in the situation I'd been in yeah. and feel they couldn't go to anyone for help and not know where to go or what to do so that's what drove me to get involved you know initially and I was very young I was only sort of 20 21 um I very quickly became a, we get, we get outsourced, but we managed to put a campaign together to have an in-house bid in Scotland. So in the whole of Britain, yeah, yeah. The, all the office support services got outsourced, but we managed to run a campaign yes. um, and keep the, the office support services in Scotland as an in-house um, bid at that time. So very quickly, I became a convener of 600 cleaners, telephonists, messengers and security wow. guards across the benefits yeah. agency in Scotland. And I suppose that was uh, my sort of baptism of fire into trade unionism. Gosh, that, that that is a baptism of fire, yeah. But big, big influences in my life um, in terms of being a trade unionist. My first branch secretary, Willie Downs, uh, in the benefits agency, who was a great guy, a really traditional trade unionist, but... Um, you know, I remember him saying to me, "You're going to everybody's going to want a piece of you because you're really young and you're different, and you'll get asked to go and do everything." And right enough, so I did. You know, before I knew it, it was in the STUC Youth Committee and this, that, and the next thing. And he said, "But don't ever forget your members come first. You know, your work you do industrially in the workplace is the most important part of your job. Going to your local branch meetings is the most important part of your job." And that's that's definitely stayed with me that the industrial comes first. Yeah. All the rest is the the sort of you know icing on the cake. But you've got to do a good job of looking after your members and building that power. But later on, people like Frances O'Grady were a great inspiration to me because she was heading up the organising academy at the very beginning. And, uh, you know, people like myself, Sharon Graham, a whole range of other people, uh, you know, were in that first year's intake of the TUC organising academy. And I think the, the work that was done there to give us a fantastic education, bringing over trade unionists from America, Australia, etc., to show us good organising strategies was really great, you know. I was reading that that while you were on the STUC Youth Committee, you you introduced Mick McGarkey to speak to the Centennial STUC Conference. And that must have been that must have been a hell of an experience. It, it, it was it was amazing. Um, it really was an amazing experience. Yeah, that was our centenary congress, and I was chair of the Youth Committee. And you know, my, it, Mick McGarkey did an amazing barnstorming speech talking about the last hundred years of the STUC yeah. and my job was to follow him and uh, 
you know, be introduced by him and, and talk about the next hundred years and what we were going to do in the future. So it was it was a great experience. And I, I can remember when I first got asked one, oh, wow, you know, I, I didn't even know he was still alive, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, sadly, he died about a year later. But it was yeah, absolutely yeah. Uh, what an honour to be able to speak alongside uh, Mick McGahey. I'd heard so much yeah. about him and... It was it was great. Well, we kind we kind of stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? I mean, I, it, it, but but actually, people are going to start standing on your shoulders soon enough for us. I think. Well, it, it's uh, I, I mean, there's so many people. I'm I feel really humbled at the moment, and you know, the whole thing of calling myself a general secretary and things like that. It does it does feel strange to me still um, at the moment, and long may it continue. It feels strange actually. I, I, I've learned so much from so many people and I do want to make sure that we take a lot of people with us. I have to say I'm really pleased about where things are at in Scotland. I think we there was something about that whole referendum debate in 2014 that really got a lot of young people across Scotland yes, really politicised yeah. and there's actually quite a radical edge to a lot of it and I think that's really exciting and it's quite incredible to see how many young people who were perhaps in the sort of radical indie movement uh, who've become trade unionists and, and, and really active trade unionists yeah. in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, it's a really exciting time. Um, I'm humbled by the people who are coming after me, uh, some of the, the capabilities and skills and ideas and enthusiasm and passion that they've got. Um, and I think it's my job to make sure that we knock a few barriers down and let them get on with it and really keep that focus on growth and organising and giving the workers on the shop floor a, a voice. Roz, thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been been a great pleasure to to talk through all these all these issues. And the very best of luck to you and and comrades, brothers and sisters involved with the STUC going forward. Thank you, Simon. I hope you enjoyed that, despite a few technical hiccups during the recording. There's lots to follow up on from what Roz was saying. Let's just pick out three things. First, organising during COVID. In some ways, with social distancing, lockdowns and the notion of key workers, it's easier. For example, communication via Zoom, Teams and so on can be a lot easier and less time consuming than trying to physically get into workplaces. Key workers have a strong sense of why what they do is important and, to a greater or lesser extent, dangerous and the value and importance of collective voice. But at the same time, certain sectors of the economy are frozen, perhaps permanently. Precarious workers, including disproportionately younger workers, are hardest hit and least protected by the government schemes. And unemployment is generally expected to rise by at least a million and probably a lot more across the UK in the coming months. As Ross says, the key union issue here is to make sure that the organising function has the necessary resources to cope with this wide range of challenges. Second, working with government. In the early days of devolved Scottish government, the STU signed up to a Memorandum of Understanding. That was in 2002. And this was part of a consciously pro-partnership approach adopted by the then Scottish executive. A review of that approach in 2004 endorsed the view that actually this brought benefits all round. In 2007 and again in 2015, further MOUs were signed with the Scottish government, led now by the SNP. The change of party in charge seems to have made no difference to the value of the Memorandum of Understanding as an effective vehicle for an ongoing dialogue on shared priorities for economic development, public service improvement, equality and social justice. I think south of the border we can but be envious.
Third and finally, Mick McGarkey, one of the most significant trade union figures of the second half of the 20th century. Vice President of the National Union of Mine Workers, lifelong communist, great and distinctive orator, so distinctive in fact that he was undecipherable to the state security services trying to keep him under surveillance in the mid-1980s. But he was also a keen negotiator, was quick with many a memorable quick, and had profound and unapologetic faith in collective action, made clear in the many eulogies paid to him following his death aged 73 in 1999. We are a movement, not a monument, is an oft-recalled Magahi quote, and they don't make him like that anymore. That's just about it for this episode. In the next Union Jews podcast, I'll be chatting with Becky Wright, Executive Director of Unions 21. Not so much a think tank as a think and do tank. Do join me then. There's more background, signposting and links to what Ros and I were discussing in the blog post that accompanies this episode. You can find that by heading over to the makesyouthink.com website. And if you like what you've heard, or even if you didn't, do get in touch. You can join the conversation by email to unionjews at makesyouthink.com or tweet us at jewsunion. And please do rate us on the podcast platform of your choice. It makes a big difference to those algorithms. Union Jews is part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a collection of 70 trade union-related podcasts, which you can access through their portal at labourradionetwork.org. My thanks again to Roz, and also to you for listening. It's been a pleasure to have your company. Until next time, whatever you do, please stay safe, and I'll see you around. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.